began our service, if you recall, just a few moments ago with a very familiar psalm, Psalm 100. It is actually entitled in the uh, inscription, a psalm of thanksgiving. As I recall, it's the only psalm in all of the psalms that actually bears that particular title. As we listened to it being read, I could not help but think of one of my favorite words for living out the Christian faith. And that is the word intentional. Have you ever heard me say that before? We need to be intentional in our worship. And I really think Psalm 100 speaks to us about intentionality, about being resolved and committed and sold out for the purpose of giving thanks. We were told that we are to be intentional in shouting joyfully to the Lord, right? We're to be intentional in serving the Lord and serving him with gladness. We're to be intentional to know that the Lord himself is God and that it is he that has made us. He is our sustainer. We are to be intentional to enter his divine presence with thanksgiving and with praise, giving thanks to him for his goodness, for his loving kindness, and for his enduring faithfulness. Well, as is our tradition, we consider a text this morning that I believe helps us contemplate what it means to be intentionally thankful as a people, and that's a good reminder as we will gather in a few days, I I suppose, around a table with several family or friends and celebrate the holiday we refer to as Thanksgiving. Now, I have a number of psalms that I've worked through over the last 28 years for this specific purpose. But the one that I started with and one that I keep coming back to is this psalm, Psalm 145. It is this Thanksgiving Sunday that allows me to feel like uh, the most ever like an itinerant preacher. I get to pull off a a sermon that I've preached before and and dust it off and and rethink it and retool it and bring it to you. And so we're going to revisit this text that has been preached in this pulpit a number of times over the last 28 years, but I pray that the Lord will allow it to be fresh in our ears. As we come to Psalm 145, I'd like you to keep in mind this word intentional, intentional, as we flesh out what it means to be a people who are thankful, you're way ahead of me, uh, thankful to, uh, to God, all right? And so we're going to read Psalm 145. If you're not already turned there, I would ask you to do so. And I invite you to stand, and we will read Psalm 145 in its entirety. Be blessed by the hearing of the word of the Lord, Psalm 145, a psalm of praise of David. I will extol you, my God, O King, and I will bless your name forever and ever. Every day I will bless you. And I will praise your name forever and ever. Great is the Lord and highly to be praised. And his greatness is unsearchable. One generation shall praise your works to another and shall declare your mighty acts. On the glorious splendor of your majesty and on your wonderful works, I will meditate. Men shall speak of the power of your awesome acts. And I will tell of your greatness. They shall eagerly utter the memory of your abundant goodness and will shout joyfully of your righteousness. The Lord is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and great in loving kindness. The Lord is good to all and his mercies are over all his works. All 
your works shall give thanks to you, O Lord, and your godly ones shall bless you. They shall speak of the glory of your kingdom and talk of your power to make known to the sons of men your mighty acts and the glory of the majesty of your kingdom. Your kingdom is an everlasting kingdom, and your dominion endures throughout all generations. The Lord sustains all who fall and raises up all who are bowed down. The eyes of all look to you, and you give them their food in due time. You open your hand and satisfy the desire of every living thing. The Lord is righteous in all his ways and kind in all his deeds. The Lord is near to all who call upon him, to all who call upon him in truth. He will fulfill the desire of those who fear him. He will also hear their cry and will save them. The Lord keeps all who love him, but all the wicked he will destroy. My mouth will speak of the praise of the Lord, and all flesh will bless his holy name forever and ever. So ends the reading of God's word. May we be blessed as we study it together. You may be seated. <clears throat> William Law, an evangelical Anglican priest of the 18th century, made this call to all genuine believers when he wrote, Would you know who is the greatest saint in the world? You'd like to know that one? It is not he who prays most or fasts most. It is he who, not he who gives the most alms or is the most eminent for temperance, chastity, or justice. But it is he who is always thankful to God, who wills everything that God wills, who receives everything as an instance of God's goodness and has a heart always ready to praise God for it. What strikes me about Law's statement is the immensity of the task to which he calls all believers. He says that the greatest of the saints are those who are always thankful to God. Now, are you amongst the category of the greatest of saints? Always thankful to God. How is that for a sobering thought? Are you always thankful to God? I must confess there, there are those times that I have to be reminded. My wife reminds me. Do you see everything that happens in your life, as law points out, as an instance of God's goodness in your life? I suppose if we're being truly honest with ourselves, we acknowledge that there are times, often too many times, in which we all fall short of that expectation to always being thankful to God. We sin against God when we fail to be filled with gratitude. Unless, of course, William Law got it wrong. Maybe he's just wrong. I mean, that always being thankful to God, is that really a legitimate expectation for the saint? Because as each and every one of you know in this room, there are a lot of obstacles in the way to always being grateful, are there not? You could tell me by testimony the things that have happened to you this week that, hey, it, these are not good things that have happened to me. At least they don't seem to be good things. So maybe law is not right that there is not... Uh, with all of these obstacles in life that 
always being thankful is, well, is it impossible? William Law is not God, and we know that, and his words are not scripture. And so maybe this is just some man-made, contrived preacher tool to make everybody feel guilty. How are you feeling? Well, we know better. For what William Law has written there is nothing short of a commentary on the copious collection of scriptures that calls us to do this very thing, to be thankful always. And, of course, the quintessential verse that we go to for that is 1 Thessalonians 5.18, where we are told in unequivocal terms, in everything give thanks. Well, why? For this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. Oh, how I need to be reminded that in the times that are difficult, when things aren't going my way, when it seems like everybody's against me, that I need to back up and remember, if God is for me, who can be against me? If we are in Christ, we are saved. If we are born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, if we have been converted, if we've died to sin and now are alive to God, if we've been transferred from the domain of darkness to the kingdom of light, then our highest calling is to be a person who says, God, thank you for what you have accomplished and are accomplishing in my life. In other words, believers are to be known and recognized by others as those who give thanks to God for all that God brings in their life, seemingly good or bad. 1 Thessalonians 5.18 tells us that this is God's will for our lives. This is God's royal decree. The king of heaven, sitting on the throne, says, in everything, give thanks. This is my will for you. If you are in Christ Jesus, my son. What that tells me is that we are to be continually, tenaciously, and intentionally thankful to him. We must go out of our way to be thankful because everything else gets in the way of being thankful. We are to be resolute and unmoved. We are to, in a sense, be stubborn when it comes to the practice of in everything give thanks. I'm giving you permission to be stubborn. But thankfulness needs an object. I hear people say so often, I'm so thankful for my life. I'm so thankful for this or that. And that begs the question, to whom are you thankful? For yourself? Look what I've done. We can be like Nebuchadnezzar. Is this not Babylon that I have built with my own hands? You're thankful just to a a human that perhaps did a nice thing for you, but tomorrow they may do nothing for you. This is not so for the believer. Believers are called to be thankful as they recognize who God is and what God has done for them in Jesus Christ. Our lives, both in our words and our actions, not just a private thing, but a public thing as well. Our lives are to be uh, billboards advertising for all to see the attitude that we are thankful to the living God. Matthew Henry, the great commentator of scriptures, put it this way, saying thanksgiving is good, but thanks living is better. Are you living out an attitude of thanksgiving? 
Believers are to be living testimonies of thanksgiving. We are to be monuments of praise to God. And I ask, how are you doing? How are we doing? And can we do better? In Psalm 145, we find a text that instructs us how to live lives that are intentional in being a people who rightly praise and thanks God in everything. I think John MacArthur put it well when he said this, a thankful heart is one of the primary identifying characteristics of a believer. It stands in stark contrast to pride, selfishness, and if that didn't get you, how about this one, and worry. It helps fortify the believer's trust in the Lord and reliance on his provision, even in the toughest times. No matter how choppy the seas become, a believer's heart is buoyed by constant praise and gratefulness to the Lord. When you are tired, when you are beat up, when you feel like the world is pressing in on you, you must be intentional to give praise to God all the more. But the question is, how do we do this? How can we live such a life of intentional thanksgiving? And we turn our attention now back to Psalm 145. Let me begin with some interesting facts on Psalm 145. The first thing that I would like to remind you is that this psalm is the last psalm identified as a psalm of David. This is the last one that we have. These are David's final words of praise and thanksgiving as recorded for us in Scripture. We can say that God has saved, then, the very best of David's psalms for last. His is the one that he ends with. We can say this is the culmination and conclusion of all the Psalms of David. Second, note the focus of David in the Psalm. We know that in the Psalms of David, he has covered a variety of subjects, has he not? He's talked about joys. He's talked about trials. He's talked about deep emotional anguish. He's been all over the spectrum. But what is the focus of this last Psalm? We read it together. The focus is that of rendering the utmost of praise and thanksgiving to the King of Kings, to God himself. The psalm is a joyful acknowledgement that God is God and that God is benevolent and that God is loving and caring and gracious. Here is David's passion for glorifying God, a passion that we as believers are to emulate in our lives. A third fact about this psalm is that it's an acrostic composition. What does that mean? What does that mean? It means that each line of thought begins with a successive letter of the Hebrew alphabet. If we were to start with A, B, C, D, and each line begins with that subsequent letter. This tells us that David, the author, took a long time to think through how is this psalm going to be composed. It is not just uh, extemporaneous. It's not just spur of the moment. He thoughtfully worked through what words will I use to express my gratitude to God. And, of course, he was guided by the Holy Spirit. And so if we uh, recognize this, we see a man who spent a great deal of time to put this together. It's not an arbitrary ranting. It's not a spontaneous prayer, but a careful, deliberate, beautifully crafted composition of praise and thanksgiving to God. Like David, 
the hymn writer, Frances Havergale, was overwhelmed by all of who God is and what God has done, and so she wrote this as a part of her hymn, If I could write as I would about the goodness of God to me, the ink would boil in my pen. When was the last time anything boiled within you because of God and his mercy? Oh, that we might write and so speak about our God with such attention might we devote ourselves to daily giving thanks to our great God. Well, the big idea of this psalm is to provoke our minds to more noble and spiritual thoughts concerning God. David's main thought in this psalm then is this. And I'm just telling you, I sent the wrong uh, one. I played around with this, so don't look at that one, okay? As one ponders the great character and workings of our benevolent and merciful God, okay, the only appropriate response is to intentionally give him thanks. How's that for simplifying? The only appropriate response is to intentionally give him thanks. When you stop to see your God is loving, when you stop to see your God is is holy, when you stop to see all that God has done for you, the only response is to intentionally give him thanks. If a person is unmoved to give thanks to God as he ponders the person and the power and the providence of God, then let me tell you, you do not know God. Psalm 145 contains spiritual thoughts to feed our souls. And as we seek to fulfill that lofty goal of the saints to be one who is always thankful to God, not just today, but every day, not when it's simply easy, but even in the midst of the most difficult times of life, we need to see that part of being a believer in Christ and is creating a tapestry of praise, meticulously making masterpieces of gratitude to present to our God as we consider his providence, the greatness of his salvation granted to us through the life, death, and resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ. Well, our outline for this psalm is simple. First, we consider David's intention, noting his determination for uh, bringing this, being a person of thanksgiving. Then we'll see his inspiration, those things of God's character that actually inspired him to write the psalm. And then finally, we'll look at David's invitation by which he calls others and in the entire creation to be people of thanksgiving. So let's begin with David's intention, verses 1 and 2, David's intention. I will exalt you, my God, O king, and I will bless your name forever and ever. Every day I will bless you, and I will praise your name forever and ever. And so here we start off with David's intention. He begins with this uh, by, by telling us what his aim, his purpose of his heart. And he does it by defining for us some terms in verses 1 and 2. Actually, three verbs that David uses to create this picture of what true thanksgiving is all about. What does thanksgiving look like? Well, David tells us. Notice the three verbs. He says, we're to exalt, we're to bless, and we're to praise. We are to exalt and bless and praise. Now, those are not complex words, but each of them tell us something special about our thanksgiving towards God, and so let us give a brief explanation of each. First, we are told David intends, his intention is to exalt God. And the word exalt, straightforward, means to lift up. It means to extol. 
in Genesis 7, 17, it is recorded that the ark of Noah was lifted up. That's the same word, same verb. Uh, he was lifted up by the floodwaters. In Exodus 17, 11, so long as the hands of Moses were lifted up, the sons of Israel prevailed against the Amalekites. And in the book of Leviticus, the priest is commanded to lift up, offer up the various sacrifices of the altar. And so what is the picture? The picture is, is that something is being lifted up for others to see, for others to behold. The ark was seen above the waters. Moses' Moses's hands were seen above the sons of Israel. And the sacrifices of the priest were raised above the altar in honor and respect to God. So what is the application? Beloved, thanksgiving means we are intentionally exalting, raising up, lifting up, extolling, and holding up the person and work of the Lord to be seen by others. It is an intentional putting on display of who God is and what he's done for you. I love how David begins the psalm. Notice the intentionality and the intensity. I will exalt you. That should be your prayer every morning when you wake up. I will lift you up, Lord. That should be at the centerpiece of your praise around a Thanksgiving table. We will exalt you, O oh God. In other words, no matter what else others may do, here David says, I will exalt you. He says, it doesn't matter what others do. I will always continually seek to show you off, to hold you up, because you are God. That's David's intention. I ask, do you have that kind of determination to lift up the Lord? Well, David uses another verb. He not only intends to exalt God, he intends to bless God. And that's the second verb here. The word bless literally means almost the exact opposite of what it means to exalt. It means to kneel. It means to bow down, to recognize the worth of something or someone else. To bless the Lord then simply has the idea of kneeling down, acknowledging God's greatness. If I could put it in a more crude sense, to bless the Lord means to get out of the way so that others can see the object that's being blessed. With this idea, the word blessed goes very well with extol, does it not? For the one who is truly going to raise up the Lord doesn't want to do so in a way that draws attention to him. It should be done in a way that gets you out of the way completely. So the characteristic of true thanksgiving is realized when we get down and get out of the way, pointing other people to the worth of God so that they might actually see who God is and not be enamored by ourselves. Third, David intends to praise his God, not only to exalt, bless, but also to praise. The word praise in the Hebrew is hallel. We get our word hallelujah from this particular word, which means to praise Jah or praise Jehovah, praise the Lord. The word praise literally means to shine, to make a show of something, to make a boast, to be clamorously foolish it can mean to rave it can mean to celebrate intensely we talk about the joy of the lord when was the last time it was so intense that it was noisy do these words describe your thanksgiving to god 
Well, we've looked at the verbs used by David, but let us quickly note the object of these verbs. The opening two verses tell us that David gives thanks to whom? To God. To God for his relationship to him as creator. And note, it is the most intimate and personal of relationships because in verse 1, David calls the Lord, My God and O King. This should be reason enough to give thanks to God if you can say, this is my God. This is the God who has saved me. I belong to him and he is mine. This is my king. And so he recognizes that God is the supreme being. He's the sovereign almighty. But David would not be content with just this, but he starts with this. In addition, David, it says, gives thanks and praise to God, not only for him being my God and the king, but he says he gives praise to the name of the Lord, which means David is very aware of the character of God. If I were just to ask you to write down on a piece of paper the characteristics of God, how long would that take you? Now, for some of you, you might write 5, 10, 15, maybe 50 things, and you might think you've gotten to the end of it. I promise you. David was intimately aware of the character of God. He knew who God was. He knew what God was like. And a, a name to the Hebrews was linked to the person's character. And the name of God, we, we usually say it as the Lord, but it's actually Yahweh, sometimes pronounced Jehovah. And God's name means self-existent one. It's his character. The self-existent one. What does that tell you about your God? He doesn't need you. He doesn't need us. He has no needs. He has no wants. He doesn't lack anything physical. He doesn't lack anything spiritual. He doesn't lack anything emotional. Is this your God? Is this the God that you can go to when you lack something physically? Is this the God you go to when you lack something spiritually? Is this the God you go to when you lack something emotionally? God is perfectly content, however, with himself. I wake up so many days and find that I am not content with my life. God does not need us. And why is this important to point out, beloved? Because the fact that he actually desires a relationship with any one of us should blow our minds. That you would even know the living God in some kind of intimate way through the knowledge of Jesus Christ it should blow our minds. And it makes this all the more wondrous when we recognize he has no real need of us. And, and so what should we do? We should give him thanks. Thank you for wanting a relationship with someone like me. I love how Spurgeon put it and gives all the more reason to give thanks. He says, when God is praised, we have come to the This is the thing for which all other things are designed. Can you imagine? This is the highest thing you can do. This is the greatest thing you can do. Every morning you wake up, you should be giving praise and thanksgiving to God. This is why you were created. This is your purpose. This is what gives your life meaning. This is what will help you overcome all other obstacles. R.C. Sproul loved the word superlative, and if I might borrow that, I would say that giving thanks to God, praising God, is the superlative duty of the believer. 
We have been designed, we are intended to extol and to bless and to praise God. How are we doing? Final thing these verses convey to us is also the most difficult for any person who is deeply committed to praising and thanking God. If you're not deeply committed to thanking and praising God, then these these words don't really bother you at all. But they bother me because they're the most difficult. In verses 1 and 2, David says he will extol, bless, and uh, bless God's name when? Forever and ever. David's intention was to be in, an, in a state of continual praise. The idea behind forever and ever is not intermittent praise, not occasionally repeated praise, not a Sunday-only kind of praise, and certainly not merely this, when I feel like it kind of praise. It is a continual, daily, intentional praise. Notice that, that phrase, forever and ever, it's repeated three times in this particular psalm. An author says something once in the scriptures, listen to it, says it twice, pay attention three times. In verse 2, David states that his thanksgiving will be when? Every day. For David, one worship service a week was not sufficient. He sought to worship every day. He sought to sing songs of praise every day. He sought to meditate on God's word every day. He sought to commune with his God in prayer every day. Charles Spurgeon once noted about this verse, saying, Our love to God is not a matter of holy days. Every day is alike holy to holy men. So if you are holy, you are seeing yourself desirous of praying, of praising, extolling, and blessing God. And so as we come to the day of Thanksgiving, may it not be the only day in which we stop and try to do something special with regard to the words uh, that we would utter to, around a table. May I suggest something? You know what Thanksgiving Day, as we celebrate it here in the United States, ought to be for the believer? It ought to be the day in which you go back through your journal, you go back through the, the things that you've been contemplating about why you're thankful to God for the whole year, and now you're just going to sum it all up in a sentence or a paragraph. That's what this kind of life ought to be. It's not a momentary thanks to God. To God. It is a continual. This is simply a, a memorial day in which we call ourselves to intentionally remember the blessings of God on a daily basis. Every day is a day of thanksgiving. Well, that's David's intention. Let's now look at our second point of David's inspiration. David's laid a groundwork for which his readers could go on and now make ample strides in giving praise to God. We could stop right there with verses 1 and 2, and we could uh, now break into groups and begin to figure out how are we going to give praise to God. But here David goes on. He, he is not content to leave it without greater detail. And in verses 3 through 20, we are given what inspired David, what motivated David to give praise and thanks to God. And I submit that these inspirations are adequate enough to motivate each of us to greater expressions of thanksgiving and praise. We're to think about and dwell upon the characteristics uh, of God and contemplate them, the quality of who he is. My desire is to provide you with two things as we consider this. First, a gold mine to give open thanksgiving to God. Let's just open up where you can just start picking out jewels everywhere. 
and a gold mine of reasons then for which to give thanks to God. John Bunyan, the author of the beloved Pilgrim's Progress, said this, You that are called born of God and Christians, if you not be criers, proclaimers, uh, there is no spiritual life in you. I was thinking, if you not be criers, we have some criers with us. And uh, so if you're not like Brother Garrett, okay, no. You that are called born of God and Christians, if you are not criers, proclaimers, there is no spiritual life in you. If you are not giving thanks, you're not exemplifying spiritual life. If you need inspiration then to stimulate your giving thanks to the Lord, here are five as outlined by David in Psalm 145. And we begin with this. Let us be inspired to give thanks for Yahweh's greatness. Great is the Lord. Great is Yahweh and highly to be praised. According to David, what is it that makes Yahweh so worthy of thanksgiving and praise? In verses 3 through, three through 6, we find that our God is great because he's impressive, because of his power, it's irresistible. His brightness is insupportable. His majesty is inspiring. His dominion is infinite, and his sovereignty is incontestable. J.I. Packer noted, the world dwarfs us all, but God dwarfs the world. Great is the Lord. If God be so great, then how ought he to be praised and thanked? Carefully, intentionally, deliberately, fully, comprehensively, you can keep adding all the words you'd like there. We ought to employ every faculty of our being. We should sing songs of praise. We should write out words of praise. We should live lives of praise. We use everything to find the words and ways by which to give thanks to God. Beloved, I will make this statement. Our praise can often be too shallow rather than deep. It is too low rather than high. It is often too worldly rather than divine. But David says, would you pause for a moment and know this truth? Great is the Lord and greatly to be praised. In proportion to God's greatness, we are to greatly praise him. How big is your God? However big your God is, in proportion to that should be your praise. Now I will say that for some of us, our God is too small. We've made him small. Dig into the word. Speak to one another of the awesomeness of our God. To the degree that we understand God's greatness, we must intentionally give him praise. If God is at such a level, at what level ought our praise of thanksgiving be? Sadly, the level of our praise to God will only rise as high as our understanding of God. Therefore, let us think about the greatness of our God. And here in these verses, we have four reasons why God is so great. Notice what David writes. First, his greatness is unsearchable. The word unsearchable literally means there is not a search. You can't search it out. The idea is that the greatness of God is past our examination, past deliberation. You can't, we could, we could get together and have a great time. I think we'd have a blessed time talking about the greatness of our God. 
We could spend the rest of the day doing it. And I know some of you would just be so excited if we did this too. But we could spend the rest of this day just writing out all of the things that make God great. And you know what? You would, we would not even scratch the surface. We would be exhausted. We would run out of calories. We'd run out of, of water. We'd run out of everything before we exhausted the unsearchable greatness of God. Now, some may take that as an excuse not to examine or deliberate the things of God, but that's not what it means. The point is we can examine and discuss and talk about, explore and probe and investigate and survey and assess and analyze the person and work of our God hour upon hour, day after day, month after month, year after year, and we will never come to the end of our examination. Is that the God that you look forward to giving thanks to? That's my God. That's my God. I will never get to the end of him but I'm going to try and that's what the point of David here upon our consideration of the things of God we will never if truly seeking come to the end of God therefore we will never come to the end of those things for which we ought to praise and give thanks to our God well not only is his his uh, greatness unsearchable his greatness is enduring one generation verse 4 shall laud your works to another and shall declare your mighty deeds in addition to this thought, verse 4 specifically reminds us that even as one generation passes into the next, the consideration of the work and person of God will continue. We're here because one generation declares the worth of God to the next. As we declare to our children the mighty acts of God, they will, if they do so with sincerity and passion, uh, if we do this, uh, by the way, with sincerity and passion, we take some time to talk uh, around the table, talk beyond just Sundays. If we talk to them about the person and mighty acts of God, our children will be awed at the God who created all things out of nothing in the space of six months. How do you get your head wrapped around that? Everything you see, everything you know, created in the space of six days out of nothing. How do you get your head wrapped around God's enduring greatness who simply spoke a word and everything comes into existence? If we will speak to these things of our children, of the God who delivered Noah and his family from the flood waters, well, that will inspire them. They will be impressed by the countless miracles found in Scripture and often and of the compassion and mercy of God to forgive and love those, particularly those who so often stray from him. Spurgeon once exhorted, let us see to it that we praise God before our children and never make them think that his servants Thanking the Lord for his greatness has a cumulative effect, according to David. One generation adds praise upon praise to who God is. Isn't that powerful? Say, well, what's greater than God creating Adam and Eve? What's greater than, than God delivering Noah through the floodwaters? What's greater than God calling Abraham out of the Ur of the Chaldees? What's greater than, than God saving Daniel from, from hungry lions?
saving your soul for the greater task of spreading your gospel in the heartland of Africa. If we would talk to our children about that and impress that upon them, they would carry it into the next generation. That's how we add greater blessings. Therefore, thanking him is a great duty and a joy. His greatness is enduring. For that, we give him thanks. But there's a third thing. We, we thank God for the, for the greatness of his majesty. Verse 5, on the glorious splendor of your majesty and on the words of your wondrous deeds, I will muse. In verse 5, the greatness of the Lord is majestic. The word majesty. What does that mean? Majesty. We say it. We'll sing that word. But what does it tell us about our God? The word majesty speaks to us of the excellence and the beauty of God. When you desire to truly thank God the way he desires and not simply the way you may feel like it or the way you desire, then you must meditate on the person, the character and nature of God. You meditate on the works of God. You see, it's not enough for us to say to ourselves and to our children, God parted the Red Sea for the people of Israel. Great deed, right? Such a thing is impressive. And to a certain extent, uh, to a certain extent, but the real question, the question that should be the, the question that we talk about is not, not God parted the Red Sea for the people of Israel. The question is, why did God do it? What does it tell us about God? What does it tell us about his person? What motivated him to save the, this rebellious people by taking them through the Red Sea? With such questions, we begin to consider the mercy of God. We hear the cries of the people in bondage to the Egyptians. We also consider the wrath of God, seeing how he will obliterate the false gods of the Egyptians, as well as punishment upon those who would mistreat his children. You give thanks for the nature and character of God for his great majesty. On such things, commit yourself to meditate, to muse on them, to think about them. Well, the fourth thing, moving on, his greatness is powerful. Verse 6, men shall speak of the strength, of power, of your fearsome acts, and I will recount your greatness. In verse 6, we see that God is great because of his strength, because of his power. And any God who can cause the sun to stand still. You read that one before? How many times do you read these things? And I, I, I like to say to myself, and I, I share with you all, when you come to Scripture and you do your daily Bible reading, act like you've never heard this Bible. You have to get that in your mind because you're just like, oh, the sun stood still. Yeah, let's move on. Wait a minute. If that happened today, the sun stood still, would be freaking out you'd be like that's what my god can do any god who can cause the sun to stand still any god who can deliver three young men from a fiery furnace any god who can cause a virgin to conceive and be with the child of the most high god if that be so then it stands to reason that i should give thanks for the blessing that he promises to use that kind of power in my life. And therefore, I need to respect that power. I need to give thanks for that power. Think, thank Yahweh for his greatness. Well, 
we're to be inspired by his greatness, but in verses 7 through 9, we're to be inspired for his goodness. And they shall pour forth the memory of your abundant goodness. In verses 7 through 10, we see that uh, here's this profound statement. I'm so glad you're here to hear this. Our God is good. Do you know that? Do you need to be reminded? Your God is good. We'll say it. God is good. And let's say God is good. And you say all the time, all the time, God is good. But I ask you in preparation for giving thanks, how do you know God is good? What is it about God that makes him so good in general and specifically for you? Well, David gives three reasons in verses 7 through 9. Notice this. His goodness is revealed in his righteousness. And they and will shout joyfully for your righteousness. We are to give thanks because Yahweh is righteous. We are even to shout it out, it says, shout joyfully. Now, the word righteous simply means here that everything God does, everything God brings to pass, everything God plans is completely right without any evil intent and is intended for your good and his glory. I look out in congregations and I know there's been some bad things happen. Whether it be this week, this month, this year. Do you say, God, I know you're just and you're good to me? Having been disappointed in this life by those who were not completely right and not without evil intent, are you grateful, thankful to God, who even when things do not look so right, you can trust is actually working out for your best and your good? And he can do that because he alone is righteous in everything. Do you give thanks for that? Well, his goodness is found in that righteousness, but his goodness is also revealed next in his character. Verse 8, Yahweh is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger and uh, slow to anger and great in loving kindness. The goodness of God is shown to be, in a sense, a mighty fountain. It just flows. It is his character. It is in his nature to be good. William, William Plummer noted that the character of God is a perfect, glorious whole. There's nothing missing with your God. Therefore, Yahweh is said in verse 8 to be gracious, meaning full of grace to them who, that serve him. He is said to be compassionate, meaning full of mercy, not giving people what they deserve. And what do you deserve? What do we all deserve here? Death. The wages of sin is death. And all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Not one of us in here is without sin. We all need a Savior. It does not matter the, the depth of your sin, the extent of your sin, the intensity of your sin. All sin deserves God's wrath, but here we're seeing his goodness. He's the God full of grace, the full of mercy, and that we then recognize we need him. Our God is said to be slow to anger. Are you not glad for that? Every one of us in this room continually offends our God. And if he had a short temper, not one of us would be in this room. God's love is great. It is grand. It motivated him to do something for us that, again, 
we should try to take in as though it's the first time we've heard it. We've, been, we've sinned against God. We're separated from God. We're going to be eternally separated from God. And yet, out of grace, out of compassion, with being his slow to anger in great loving kindness, he sent a Savior, even Jesus Christ, demonstrating that he's ready to give, he's ready to forgive, and he's more ready to do these things for us than we are to even ask him God so loved the world that he gave his only son, his only son, that whoever believes on him shall not perish, but have everlasting life. Well, his goodness is not only revealed in his character, verse 9, his goodness is revealed in his impartiality. Notice what it says, verse 9. We don't like this one, do we? Yahweh is good to all. In this life, he's good to all. How can we say that? Because you're breathing, you're receiving the goodness of God. His compassions are over all of his word. God is good to all, to all of his creatures. That's why we sing all creatures of our God and King. We lift up our voice to him. This means that from the highest angel down to the meanest worm, to all but devils and damned sinners that have shut themselves out of God's goodness. God is good. Yahweh has revealed his goodness, his compassions. They are new every morning. His tender mercies are said to be over all of his works. And I ask you, how should you respond when you know you're breathing? How should you respond when you take a, a piece of bread to your mouth? Or maybe a piece of prime rib. So we thank God for his goodness, for then we move to not only be inspired by his goodness, we are to be inspired to give thanks to Yahweh for his glory, for his glory. Verses 10 through 13, we exalt, praise, bless, and therefore give thanks to the Lord for his glory. But I'd like you to note how David defines glory, and he does it here by means of God's rule. He calls it a kingdom, right? In other words, God's glory, that is his splendorous presence, is realized, it is known by his ruling and reigning in our lives. It is only as people come to recognize God's sovereignty, as God's lordship, that God's glory is realized. Therefore, God's glory is most manifested in those who are his subjects. That's you and me if we're born again. It's to those who have submitted themselves to God's rule. Have you submitted yourself to God's rule? You will never give thanks to God properly, rightly, unless you have submitted yourself to his rule, his word, his purpose, to his kingship, and then it's to his glory. Notice how God's glory is revealed in the following two ways. First, there is a contrast of the kingdom. Contrast uh, of the kingdom in verse 10 and 11, 
All your works, O Yahweh, shall give thanks to you, and your holy ones shall bless you. They shall speak of the glory of your kingdom, your rule, and talk of your might. Here it says people will speak of God's kingdom in contrast to what's available on this earth. Do we do that? Our citizenship is where? In heaven, from whence we eagerly await a savior. Do we talk about that enough? We are to be speaking of that contrast. What is it that makes God's kingdom so glorious? All of God's creatures, all of God's subjects, David says, will give thanks to him. Unlike earthly kingdoms in which the subjects, no matter how well they may be treated, what do they always do? They'll find fault. There's something wrong with our government. They're covering something up. They're in it for themselves. It doesn't matter what earthly kingdom you're talking about. There will be none of that in God's precious Israel. There is no other kingdom that will usher us into eternity but the kingdom of Christ, the kingdom of our God. And so the people of God are to continually get out of the way, blessing God, speaking of how wonderful God's rule is. You know, I don't rule myself. I am a servant of the living God. And if we're not declaring that, we're not thanking God for blessing us. But not only is there the contrast of the kingdom, there's the, the context of the kingdom, verses 12 and 13. To make known to the sons of men his mighty deeds and the glory of the majesty of his kingdom, your kingdom is an everlasting kingdom and your dominion endures from generation to every generation. So we speak not only of God's rule and power, but we are to make known the very content, the context of the kingdom. And what is it, beloved? God's kingdom isn't natural. It's supernatural. Even as God's kingdom rules in the hearts and minds of those who have trusted Christ as Savior and King, there is to be a continual desire then for us to make known to the sons of men, to everyone else, the awesome acts of our God. The greatest of which is what? I already shared it just a moment ago. It's not calling all things in truth and goodness and salvation as they love Christ. It's not the parting of the Red Sea. It's not the raising of Lazarus from the dead. The greatest act of God is the regeneration and transformation of sinful men. If you are here today because you know dead in your trespasses but you were made alive together with Christ seated with him in heavenly places then you should be a servant of God's kingdom it is our duty as believers to speak much and speak often of the incomparable wisdom and goodness and care which God has exercised in us and which God continues to exercise in governing this world his people, uh, as his people, we are to be those who recount the memorable acts of God. We are to recount those acts of God's in invincible power among us so that all the people who fail to regard such things as they ought will see in us and be made aware by us how mighty the Lord is. And we pray that that will come into play in our lives as we invest in him. This is the kingdom of God. Such a kingdom is an eternal and enduring kingdom for all time. No one can take God's kingdom away. We might be seeing the, the 
uh, erosion of, of this particular country called the United States is going to be something different in the years ahead than it started out to be. That's true of every single kingdom of this earth except for one. Christ establishes it. Such a kingdom and such a glory to God that we give thanks to God. I love what John Piper said once. He said, we are all starved for the glory of God, not self. No one goes to the Grand Canyon to increase self-esteem. There is greater healing for the soul in beholding the splendor than there is in beholding self. If you've ever been to the Grand Canyon, you stand on the edge and you see the immensity of it, you see it's small, it's not about you, it's not about yourself, it's about how can I do it? Now multiply that by a number that you can't even begin to comprehend, and that's what you see when you behold God and examine the sovereignty of his creation. And it's just inspired next as David says for Yahweh's generosity when we consider giving thanks to God we must recall Yahweh's generosity to us and as we'll come to see his generosity is in no way limited it's an unending resource it plays out in the lives of all people both the people of God as well as those who do not know him and let us see in these verses how God is gracious and worthy of our praise and thanksgiving for his generosity. Look at verse 14. Yahweh sustains all who fall and raises up all who are bowed down. The eyes of all wait on you, and you give them their food in due time. You open your hand and satisfy the desire of every living thing. Yahweh is righteous in all his ways and holy in all his works. What is to be noted here is that Yahweh's generosity is given to all people and to all creatures. It is a common misconception that God does not bless and give to unbelievers. We've made note of that. The mere fact that there are unbelievers present is a manifestation of God's generosity. For the mere fact that their unbelief gives God the ground to exact eternal punishment. In Romans 1, 19 and 20, we read very familiar words for us, that that which is made known about God is evident within them, those who are unrighteous, it says, for God made it evident to them, for since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood through what has been made, so that they are without excuse. Not one person. naturalists would say it's just kind of there who put the air you're breathing right now in this room God he provides the very food you eat the very home you live in and yet 
how often do we fail to do the right thing? We are reminded that God is the helper of the helpless and that we are the helpless. If he doesn't do it, we die. How much more ought the people of God then give thanks to God for the gift of his sustaining in our lives, for the food that we get to eat, for the earthly pleasures we get to enjoy? I would simply draw your attention to exactly what is said at the end of verse 14 when it says, And God raises up all who are bowed down. Remember what the word exalt means? To lift up. And the word bless means to kneel down or get out of the way. Here the word of God makes a statement of fact. Statement of fact. Those who are bowed down, who bless and honor the Lord, showing forth his glory will be the ones who are raised up. Humble yourself in the sight of the Lord. And he will what? Lift you up. Why should you give thanks to Yahweh? He, he has promised to bring blessing upon blessing to those who will humble themselves before him, who will call upon his, the name of his son, Jesus, for salvation. It is Yahweh who has promised to satisfy, I love this, to satisfy the desire of every living thing, verse 16. Consider that every plant, every atom, every insect, Indeed, every rank and order of creatures hang dependent upon Yahweh's sovereign will. And if just one link in the chain of that dependence is broken, they would all not only be wretched, they would also perish. Yahweh satisfies, and he is the only satisfaction for all things, and for this we ought to give This is his generosity to those who give him thanks. It brings us to our final reason for inspiration. David says he's inspired to give thanks for Yahweh's gift. In verses 18 through 20, we're given this final reason to praise and give thanks to the Lord. We're to praise God, he says, for the gift. Although God does bring blessing upon all of his creation, there are yet some specific, some special blessings for those who submit themselves to him. Look at verses 18 through 20. Yahweh is near to all who call upon him, to all who call upon him in truth. He will work out the desire of those who fear him. He will hear their cry for help. He will save them. Yahweh keeps all who love him. Stop there a moment. Why should you praise Yahweh? See the fourfold blessing. Yahweh is near to all. Yahweh will work out the desire of those who fear him. Yahweh will hear their cry for help and save them, and Yahweh keeps all who love him. In other words, we see here, beloved, the promise of God's presence, God's provision, God's protection, and God's preserving his people. God's presence, God's provision, God's protection, and preserving his people. Yet I just made an important statement. God's presence and his provision and his protection and preserving is promised only to one particular people. To those who what? 
What is the qualification to be fulfilled if you're going to receive this gift? And it's there in verse 18. Yes, a person is required to call upon him. You call upon the name of the Lord. And it says to call upon him how? In truth. That's a reference to Christ himself, that we call upon him who is the way, the truth, and the life. That's the essence of the gospel message to us. The truth of man's sin, that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. The truth that the wages of sin is death. The truth that God himself paid the penalty for sin, for the sin of his people. The truth that Jesus Christ is not only Savior, but he's Lord, to whom every person will bow down to, either as Savior now or as judge later. Either as Savior to the bliss of eternal life in heaven or as judge to him who will cast their souls into eternal judgment. The truth is that all who call upon the name of the Lord will be saved, amen? But to call him is to acknowledge his word. It is to say, I know what your plans are. I believe your word and I submit to them. For Yahweh keeps all those who love him. But now notice what it says, but the, all the wicked he will destroy. There are many today who do see the general blessings of Yahweh as described in verses 14 and 15. And yet they don't stop once to acknowledge that generosity. They do not stop once to receive the gift. And therefore, they are headed for destruction. Have you given thanks to God for his generosity and for his gift of salvation? This is intentional thanksgiving. Well, it brings us to our final thought David's in invitation, verse 21. And there's a response. What shall we say to these things? In David's final verse, I submit to you there is an invitation. Here we find David's goal and purpose for writing this psalm, and that purpose is that each one of us call upon the name of Yahweh, that we can make this our own. It's a rehearsal of David's being intentional. And the first is this. Now, my notes got all messed up, so I've got two notes for you here, okay? Two points. The first is this, David's personal goal, and we see it at the beginning in verse 21. My mouth will speak the praise of Yahweh. It should go without saying that the believer's goal ought to be intentionally speaking the praise of Yahweh. This is David's personal goal. It should go without saying, should it? For David himself states his personal intention, I will give thanks and glory to God. I will speak the praise of Yahweh. This isn't just David as the king of Israel. This isn't just David uh, as, as a shepherd boy. This is David, a human like you and me. And what is David saying? My goal is that I will speak the praise of Yahweh. What is your goal? And you can tell me all sorts of things. Your goal may be just to get out of here as quickly as you can. You can tell me your goal. Your goal may be to enjoy the rest of the afternoon when we're done. Your goal may be to, you know, raid Walmart and buy a turkey. I don't know what your goal is, but the ultimate goal should be intentionally saying, I am going to speak of the praise of Yahweh. Matthew Henry once noted, when we have said what we can in praising God, still there is more to be said. And therefore, we must not only begin our thanksgiving with this purpose, as David did in verse 1, 
but conclude them with it, as David does here, because we shall presently have occasion to begin again. Listen to what he says. I love this. At the end, uh, as the end of one mercy is the beginning of another, so should the end of one thanksgiving be. While I have breath to draw, my mouth shall still speak of God's praises. You're not trying, we're not trying to get to the end of God by saying, well, I thank God for A, B, and C. Good, let's eat. It should be, I thank God for A, B, and C, big C, C. And while I'm eating, I might think about how much he loves me for what he's given me. And that refers to all things. I love there'll be times at the table when that happens, when we'll start talking about one thing and sudden the conversation just we're talking about all these various aspects of God and what he's done maybe in our lives we might be talking about scripture but one phrase leads into the other leads into the other would you allow that to be your word well and then finally that's David's personal goal that would be number one there number two would be David's public goal David's public goal and that's at the end of verse 10 when he says simply this and all flesh will kneel will bless his holy name forever and ever. Beloved, our praises, I take from this, that our, our praises and thanksgiving are not to be done in isolation. We are to be intentional in calling others to join us in our praise. This is the beauty of the psalm. It reminds each of us to praise God for his many blessings in our lives. It pushes us, though, to call others to do the same. We are to call, as David says here, all flesh, that is, all people, to bless the name of Yahweh and to do it when? Just like we're trying to do forever and ever. This is a gospel invitation. I want you to know God the way I know God. I want you to know God through Jesus Christ, my Lord. I do want you to know him who is the way, the truth, and the life, and that no one will come to the Father. No one will praise the Father. No one will give thanks to the Father except it be through Jesus that as we share the gospel only some will ever thank our gracious God it's a shame that not all are willing or able to do it now but David's words are prophetic are they not there will be a time after the wicked are destroyed we read that that all flesh will only and ever praise our God in the meantime however let us be a people say I am resolved I will be intentional in giving thanks to my God that I will live with the intention of continually giving him thanks I will be inspired by the work of God to give thanks and I will invite others to give thanks to God by calling their attention to the marvelous works of my God especially for the work of salvation by faith in Jesus Christ through the grace of God God, we thank you for the truth of this psalm. We thank you how it speaks to who we are, that we are a people who can be prone to focus in on self, focus in on our problems, focus in on our wants and our desires, and yet this psalm takes us away from all of that. It's a call to focus on you, to remember who you are, to be intentional 
in finding all those things that inspire us to give thanks to you. Father, we pray that you would enable us to do that all the more as we gather with family and friends for this coming Thanksgiving. May we extend the invitation to all that you do in giving praise to all that you are. As we recognize that it is because you have sent your son Jesus Christ to be our Lord, our Savior, the one who will guide us, take us through this world, enable us to know you, enable us to make you known. So, Father, we pray that we be led by our Savior towards that end so that we might be the people of great thanksgiving for what you have accomplished for us. Thank you, Lord. Help us to give you